Good morning. How are you guys today? Good to see you all. Hey, um, just last month we celebrated the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. Does anyone here remember what they were doing during 9-11? Most of you guys, right? Most everyone here. Um, I remember it was a Tuesday, and uh, I still remember because I was in Little Rock, Arkansas, of all places to be. Uh, I had flown out the Sunday before, so we had, our company had sold a product, and it needed repair, and they sent me out to repair it. I flew out Sunday night. Monday morning, I go in. I had brought tools and, like, equipment to fix it, and I fix it before noon. So I'm ready to rebook my flight and come back to Miami on Monday. But they said, listen, we want to just make sure that it works. So allow us, our mechanic and our people, our technicians to put it in. So I'm like, okay, what's that going to do? And they said, well, by tomorrow we should have it ready. So I'm like, well, all right, you know, job comes first. So I stayed overnight. I got there the next morning and I walk in. I got nothing to do. I'm just standing around watching the guys work. And then somebody comes out from this into the shop area and they said listen the stock market just crashed and i said the stock market just crashed and i don't know if you guys remember there was a lot of financial issues going on at that time and there was a little bit of fear financially that that would happen so i'm like it just crashed really and he's like yeah it's all over the news so i walked over into the lounge and they had a big tv there and i sat down and i started watching it and I started, I saw it unfold right from the beginning. I mean, I saw the, the flames in the building. They didn't even know what it was yet. It was only the North Tower and then all these other things occurred. And it just unfolded as the day went. And of course, as I'm sitting there, they're like grounding all the flights. Because you remember, they were trying to see if there were any other flights in the air. One hit the Pentagon and then there was still this one coming out of Pennsylvania. And they grounded everyone except this one didn't respond. And I remember they were nervous about like the, 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 the fighter jets, if they were going to have to shoot down a civilian plane and all this other stuff. And you guys know the rest of the story. Um, so uh, then they announced every plane that came down is not going to, they're not going to start flying them again for a day or two. I'm like, are you kidding me? I was stuck in Little Rock, Arkansas. Now there's, I don't know, is anyone here from Little Rock before I start making fun of it? Okay, good. No. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing to do out there. I'm stuck. I'm stranded in a hotel. And uh, so my boss calls and I'm like, we're, we, and every day was, are they going to start flying again? Are they going to start flying again? And here's the deal. Even if they started flying, they were, they grounded people in mid-flight. So somebody was trying to make it to like LA was stuck in Mississippi or something. And so their priority was to get only the people that were stuck away from home the rest of the journey home. So they still weren't going to book my flight. So my boss calls up, I'm talking to him. And he's like, listen, we'll just, we'll just rent you a car. So you go down, I already rented it. You go get it and you drive home and that's how we'll get you home. So I did, I went and I got the car. I remember it was like two in the afternoon by the time I got the car and I started driving home. Little Rock is very far away from Miami. And um, I just kept going and I thought, well, you know what? I, I looked at the map and I'm like, I, I come, I go through Louisiana. I come really close to New Orleans. I'm like, I, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop and eat dinner in New Orleans. I love New Orleans. I love the food. So I'm like, I, so I get there around dinner late at night and I just, I just take a two hour detour, <laughs> literally two hours. I drive downtown right to the French quarter and I go to Nola's restaurant. You guys, anyone heard of Nola's? Emeril Lagasse is his first, you know, bam, that guy is his first restaurant. And so I was like, I went there and I ate dinner and I was satisfied. Then I got back in my car and I started driving home and I just, I drove the rest of the way home. 
the whole thing, all the way to Miami. Now, has anyone here ever seen Pee-wee's uh, Big Top Adventure? Was it Pee-wee's Adventure or something like that, right? And do you remember the scene where he's in the desert and he's driving and it's like stuff's just going by and then all of a sudden he starts hallucinating while he's driving? That really happens. It happened to me. I was driving and I just started seeing things in my vision. I mean, it was probably like three in the morning. I'm, it's dark everywhere and stuff's happening. I'm realizing that I'm dreaming with my eyes open. It's really a weird sensation. And listen, I know this wasn't safe. So if there's any, you know, kids here, don't do this at home. Don't try it. It was really stupid of me. I drove 23 hours straight, except for the dinner, and all the way to Miami. And I finally made it home. I'll never forget 9-11 because of the experience that I went through. You know, there are a lot of events like that that have happened in the past that we, we, we remember. I remember like the generation before me used to always say, I remember exactly where I was when JFK was assassinated. Right? Maybe you remember when Challenger exploded in 86, the first shuttle to have a disaster like that. Or even 2003, I think, was Columbia coming, returning. So there's these events that we remember from our history. But lately, lately I've been wondering about future events that are going to occur. I don't know if you guys know. You might be aware my wife and I were pregnant, or she's the pregnant one. Right? We're going to have a little girl, we found out. Yeah, we're going to name her Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I am imagining what it's going to be like on the first day that I get her home. Right? The very first day that I get this little girl into my house. Because everybody's telling me that's the day the rest of my life is going to change. Right? So I'm like very curious as to what's going to happen. I'm also thinking about her first day of school. The first day she actually goes out away from us. Or then when she goes off to college because now she's leaving the house and she won't even be around anymore. Or the day that she gets married. All of these things, these events, I'm starting to picture in my head. And I think there are certain future events that we all wonder about. We all think, what's it going to be like? And have you ever, have you ever wondered what it's going to be like when Christ returns? Right? I, I don't know if you're like me, but I just kind of drive. Sometimes I'm driving. I'm just driving and I'm looking up at the sky and I'm like... That's an interesting cloud up there. You know, it's interesting. Lord, are you going to come through that cloud? Are you like, I'm like thinking when you come, what's going to happen? Is it like going to be like part or is it going to get really stormy? Or are you going to come like lightning? Is this going to be a bright light? I'm like, I think about that sometimes, not all the time. Okay. I'm not crazy, but I do sometimes just think about that. Like, what is it going to be like? And, um, you know, have you ever wondered about that? Maybe you've wondered what you're going to be doing. I mean, Pastor Bob joked about it a couple of weeks ago, right? Are you going to be like flicking through the channel? Maybe the wrong channel you don't want to be watching or like you're watching Honey Boo Boo, right? And you're like, God probably doesn't think that that's a good use of my time, right? I'm always afraid like I'll be in the shower though. <laughs> because not that that's being in the shower is bad. It's just I don't want to be like, going up in the air while I'm naked and like... Like, Lord, if you would just give me a couple minutes notice, I'll make sure I'm ready to go. You know, none of us wants to be doing something questionable. We want to do something that pleases God. Because we don't want to think God will think that that's what, what we're like, right? Because <laughs> if we, well, he caught me in that moment, that's what we're like. But here's the thing. What we're doing in the moment doesn't really define who we are, does it? I mean... You're not just a snapshot of your life in one moment, are you? So maybe the better question we could ask is not what will I be doing, but who will I be becoming? Who will I be as a person, right? And will I be the same person that I am today? Most of my life, I've been six feet tall. You know, I'm six feet tall, like six even. 
even on the nose. And I've known that for a long time. And uh, I, I, I like that number. And I think a lot of other people like that number. They want to aspire to be six feet tall. And so I hear a lot of people say, yeah, I'm six feet tall. And like, because I'm six feet on the nose, I kind of like go like this to them, you know, like, you're not six feet tall, you know? And I'll say, you're not six feet tall, but they want to be. Everybody wants to be a little bit bigger. I have my friend Scott, he's six, he's five, six and a quarter. And he's like, but I don't want to be that. I just call me five, seven, right? He's like rounds up, you know, some people round up by the inch. Other people like round up by the foot. (laughs) They're like five, 10. And they're telling me they're six feet. I'm like, there's no way. And just recently, people were like challenging me on that. And they're like, you've got to be taller than that. You've got to be taller. So I literally decided I'm going to measure myself. And I measured myself. My wife helped me. We put a level and everything. And I checked it out. I'm actually six feet and one half inch. I'm like, where did that one inch come from? Right? I like, when did I grow? I mean, I remember I grew in college because I was like 5'11". Then in college, I grew another inch. But I'm like, where did that inch come from? I mean, that's not right. Because I'm, I was surprised because, listen, at one point, we all stopped growing, right? In fact, right now, there are people that are actually shrinking. They're like going in reverse at this point in their life. So it's like, we don't think that you're going to keep getting older, or, I mean, taller at some point. Because physical maturity stops and we just stop growing. And I think that's like a prevailing underlying thought in our life. When we think about life, we hope that someday we will arrive at our goals or our plans or our destination. And it's that way with like our jobs, right? We finally get the job that we wanted and we stop. Or we, we, we find the, the area of life or education that we need to be at that level and then we stop. Or we find the home that we aspire to be in and then that's the dream home and that's where we stay. And so I think we get to the idea that um, it's just natural for us to think that there's a point where we stop growing. But the truth is, we should really never stop growing, if you think about it. I mean, we live in an age where technology is so, you know, advancing that we have to keep up with that. We have to keep going with our knowledge when it comes to that. When it comes to different stages of life we keep entering into, we want to know more about them so we do them better. There were 50 couples. You may have noticed a gap here last week, although I I heard the attendance was great. But 50 couples last week were at the couples retreat working on their marriage because they want to know more about marriage. You know, I just recently bought the book, uh, Bringing Up Girls, because uh, that's James Dobson's. He has Bringing Up Boys and Bringing Up Girls because like, I, I want to know what I'm in for. I'm going to be around two women. I need some help here. You know, it's like my household is going to change. So I'm going to learn a little bit more there. And I think we should be growing in every area of our life when we really think about it. And your spiritual life is no exception. In fact, I think your spiritual life should probably be your most, the most essential area of our lives to grow in. If you got your Bible handy, I want you to turn to First Thessalonians. We're in chapter four. We're going to read from verse one in just a minute. And we're in the series called How to Prepare for the End of the World. And the reason it's called that is because the books of Thessalonians, both of those two books, talk about some end time events that happen. In fact, next week, Pastor Bob is going to talk about what the rapture looks like. Don't read ahead. But that's what he's going to be talking about next week because that's what the area is covering. So what we're doing right now, Paul has been speaking kind of like on how to prepare ourselves from the end of the world. And today he is encouraging us to grow. That's what he's talking about. Let's read verse one for a minute here. It says, finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Now, I I want you to notice for a minute, just for a minute, the words 
that Paul is using. He says, abound more and more. The word abound there is a, is a Greek word that he actually uses twice in the verses we're going to cover. It's there, and he translate it, it translates it abound. In verse 10, he's going to use the word increase. And, and when I look that word up, it really means to abound super abundantly. Super abundantly to abound. So he uses this word, we're supposed to abound by a lot, and then he says, on top of that, more and more, right? This double superlative. As if that wasn't enough, super abundantly, more and more, super abundantly. And it's very clear that he wants us to grow. And he's not talking about abounding spiritually and materially. I mean, not spiritually, yes, not materially in our life, but spiritually, because that's the verses that he's going to be talking about in just a moment. The, pull out your outlines if you haven't already, because I want you to fill something in. The first fill-in that you have there, I want you to write this. A true disciple of Jesus never stops growing. A true disciple of Jesus never stops growing. Paul's desire for you and me is that we should keep growing. Here's Paul's own words when he was writing to the Philippians. It's in your outline. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of for that, uh, that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. He says, I haven't been perfected. I haven't attained. I am still growing. If Paul is still growing, then we should be growing. But what does it mean to grow spiritually? I mean, it's not just saying that we believe God. It's not just attending church every single day or every Sunday. If you change every day, that'd be good too. But, but God is looking for growth in our lives. And I guess the question for you and I is, what does spiritual growth look like? And that's the question that we're going to answer today. I'm going to give you three indicators of spiritual growth. Let's read from verse two now. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the first indicator of spiritual growth is this. You can fill it in. How I act. How I act. That's the first one. You may want to write, parenthetically right next to it, obedience. Obedience. How I act. How am I doing when it comes to being obedient to God's word? Particularly, Paul points to sexual sins. That's what he's talking about there. And I, I guess, why is he talking about that? Because when Paul is writing this, sexual promiscuity is like running rampant in that culture. I mean, it was just very common. Marriages at that time in the Greek and Roman culture were arranged marriages. You see, young men in their 20s and young women in their teens would get married, be arranged marriages where they would maybe never even meet until they got married. It was a legal arrangement where they exchanged goods or money or they secured like their social status. And they also were able through that to have children. And thus they would continue their line of people. And this created an environment where many people did not 
expect husbands to be committed. Sexual misconduct and adultery were everywhere, were very widespread. Actually, prostitution at that time was a legal form of earning money. Listen to this quote. It says this, Mistresses we kept for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children. These guys had like a whole... I didn't know there was a difference, honestly, between a mistress and a concubine, but apparently there is. So he's got like three categories of women that, they, that men were involved with. And this is written, this quote is from a man who lived two centuries before Paul's even writing this. So this was like common in the day. You see, sexual experimentation has been prevalent throughout human history. And uh, in ancient Greek culture, the form that they believed was the highest and purest form of love was homosexual love. That's what the Greeks believed at that time. And sex was actually something they used in worship when they worshiped God in their ceremonies and orgies and all the weird things. Or you'd come and you'd have sex with the priestess. And so this was very common. It wasn't anything that was new. And these ideas uh, are not new and they resurge. We're not more enlightened than any previous generation because we believe, hey, sex is headed in a certain direction. You see, we believe that sexual exportation is something that's really relatively new, right? Like the sexual revolution happened in the 60s. That's what we believe. And now everybody, this whole society, all of the world is becoming more enlightened when it comes to sex. But that's not true. See, the Bible tells us that these practices are as old as the Bible itself. You see, we live in, a, in an age in America where we still are influenced by the Puritan founders, You see, for the last 300 years, we've had this huge Christian influence in our lives. So um, that has had an effect on our society. But the last 40 or 50 years ago, uh, the last 40 or 50 years, we've actually began to question the notion of Christian virtue when it comes to sexuality. It's not something that's been new. See, if we looked at the totality of history, we would actually see and get a false sense, or we wouldn't get the false sense that our culture is somehow evolving when it comes to sex. You see, we think that this is new and our, and our society has progressed. And with progression, then we need new ways of thinking, right? New ways of behaving. And so then we look at the Bible and we say, well, if this is all new and the Bible's telling us to do something else, well, then this is really not relevant for me today, is it? It doesn't have anything to do with me today because we've now evolved. We've gone somewhere else when it comes to this whole realm of sex. But the truth is, it's been happening throughout all of history. Nothing that we are experiencing, you and I, or the things that we understand are anything new. It's been happening for years and years and thousands of years. You see, the idea of sex being reserved for marriage, right, for us, in our culture today, right here in America, we think it's outdated. We think that that's something that's like, wow, that's outdated. But if you really thought about it, when we look at all of history, it's actually a very revolutionary idea, isn't it? Because throughout history, sex has been whatever we wanted it to be. Even in Paul's day, this was a revolutionary idea because sex was just whatever people wanted it to be. You see, these ideas that the Bible promotes now in our society where we see it from can sometimes be hard, right, to accept. But being hard to accept and being hard to live out are actually two very different things. Both are signs of spiritual growth. But if you don't 
you will never struggle with trying to live it out if you don't first accept it. When I was 18, I worked uh, summers for the Army Corps of Engineers. I don't know, it's a fancy word, but it's basically a government job. And the Army Corps of Engineers, they maintain the dam system. They're allowed to flood, they, you know, easements and all this other stuff. Well, in Florida, we don't have much of that because there's, you know, it's level, it's flat. But in New England, it's all mountainous and there's valleys and things like that. And in the early part of the, of the 20th century in the 1900s, there was flooding that took place that flooded towns so, so badly and killed people that they decided to put up a system of dams. Now, my job, fast forward to when I show up on the job, was really just to maintain those dams. And so we would clear boundary lines and we would make sure everything is good so vehicles could get in. And so when one day we're out clearing the boundary lines, you know, we got our chainsaws and we're cutting and stuff and we would just pick up the brush and then we would carry it off into the woods. And as I'm doing that, a guy that I work with, um, his name was Lance. Lance says to me, as I grab this pile of stuff, he goes, John, hold on a minute, that's poison ivy. And I said, this isn't poison ivy. And he goes, yes, that's poison ivy. I go, listen, I know what poison ivy is. It's like pointy and spiky and shiny, and this isn't poison ivy. And he goes, and we both went to the same college, and he was, uh, he was a forestry major, right? <laughs> I was an engineer. <laughs> this is going to get embarrassing in a minute. And he goes, he goes, listen, I'm a forestry major, and I know what poison ivy is. I said, you're pulling my leg. This is not. And in fact, I so strongly think that this isn't poison ivy that I'm going to take it and I'm going to rub it all over my arms. Now, how stupid can... I didn't know I could be that stupid. Well, now I do. I do know I could be that stupid. So I take the poison these leaves that I didn't think were poison ivy, and I start rubbing them. I mean, I'm rubbing them on my arms. I'm rubbing them. So you can only imagine next day what my arms look like. I mean, they were all one big swollen mass. I mean, it was gross. It was disgusting. I've never had poison ivy like that in my whole entire life. You know, here it is, right? Here I am. This is a forestry major who knows about plants. And I'm not listening to him. You know, like, forget it. Look at it. When it comes to life, God is the author of life. He's the one who wrote the book. He's the one who knows what life is about. He knows what's best for you and me. That's why Paul, as we just read this, we read those first eight verses. At the, the, the eight verse, I'm going to reread it. It's in your outline. Just listen to what he says again. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man. It's not man's ideas, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. You know, these ideas about sexual promiscuity, sex should be only reserved for marriage, they're not antiquated. They're not for a certain time in history. The cultures, it's not for a certain culture because cultures don't dictate what's right for our life. Cultures change. But God never changes. Let me, let me get to the point here. I've like, talked about all this for a minute. Let me narrow, narrow it down a little bit. Could it be, could it be that obedience, your obedience and my obedience, how we act is tied to how much we actually believe this is true in our life. Right? Because if we actually believed this was true, then we would follow it maybe. You see, if I believed Lance that it was really poison ivy, if I believed that, I no way I would have rubbed it on my hands. I rubbed it on my arms. I wouldn't have done it. Because what we believe often dictates our actions. Listen. If you can change the way a person thinks, 
then you can change the way a person will act. That's where we have to start. We have to begin by believing this is true. When we believe it's true, when we believe it is right, everything in it for our lives, it's then that we will begin to act correctly. Listen to these words that Paul says. This this is going to maybe revolutionize this verse for you, but I put it in your outline. He's writing to the Romans. He says, So, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship God. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Now, here's the important part. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. When we believe that this is true, when we believe that this is accurate for our lives, it's then that it will begin to transform us and we will begin to see growth and transformation in our life. You know, I can tell a person who's been walking with God and growing because they agree with God's word. When I see someone acting it out and living it and applying it to their life, I'm like, this is a person that's growing in maturity in God. If we can't recognize that it applies to us, then we're never, ever going to grow spiritually in our lives. You know, I've told you this before. Maybe you've heard me say it before. But the reason I recognized my wife as the one who was going to be my wife is because we were in a small group together on finances. And we came to one night where the topic was tithing. And, you know, people were talking different things. And I remember distinctly one person says, I'm not going to tithe. I don't think that that's for me today. And Carolina just said, you know what? I'm going to tithe. I'm like, well, why are you going to tithe? And she goes, because God said it. I'm like, that's all it took? You know, I, when she said that, I knew she believed everything that was in this. And she believed it was important for her life. And then I also knew that it was going to transform her and change her. You see, that's where we're going to find growth right now. The first step in believing is believing that, the, that this book right now applies to you and me right now for every situation in every way every day but you might also need to know what it says right in order for it to for us to apply it this statistic may astound you and maybe not but i looked it up just to see but it it's been found out that 20 to 25 percent of christians who attend church only 20 to 25 percent actually have read the bible from cover to cover only 25 percent that means One out of four. So one of you is and three of you aren't. Haven't never read it. Right? I'm not trying to get down on you about it. (laughs) But think about that for a minute. If we say this is what is the the author of our life, if we say this is what is going to lead us to uh, happiness, to blessing, and to uh, growth spiritually, then shouldn't we know what it says? I want to do something. I want to help you. I want to help you. I don't want to scold you. I want to help you. Listen, take your connection card out for a minute. And on the back side, halfway down on the left, it says, read the Bible in one year. It's actually not that hard. If you spend about, depending how fast you read, you could spend either 15 minutes or half an hour every day, and you can get through the Bible in one year and read everything that has to say. So what I want you to do is check that off. And I'm not going to call your house or anything like that and ask you why you haven't. What I'm going to do is send you a plan that will help you do it in a year. So check that off if that's you. Let's, uh, let's read from the next, uh, the next verses in, in verse 9. It says this. 
But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Let's stop right there in the middle of that verse for a minute. Here's the second thing that will help you understand, a second indicator of spiritual growth, and that is this, how I treat others, how I treat others. Paul commends the Thessalonians for their love towards one another. I mean, apparently they were well known for it because he's like writing about it and like everybody knows here. It's interesting. When I talk with people sometimes that I barely know or whatever, and I'll kind of ask them what religion they are, and I can kind of tell that they're not really a Christian. They may not understand the gospel or they don't really even attend church or anything like that, but then they'll say, but basically I'm a Christian. Like, why is that? Why do they want to be known as a Christian? And I believe it is because Christians are basically known as good people. They're known as people who love and care about others. So they're like, yeah, throw me in. I'll be a Christian too. I mean, they don't understand the whole thing perhaps, but that's what Christians should be. The truth is though, we all struggle in some area of our lives when it comes to how we treat others. Do our emotions sometimes rule our situations? Do we blow up at people in anger? Does that happen in your life? Do we flip out all of a sudden in the middle of stress? Do we have a hard time forgiving others? Right? These are some things that each one of us could probably struggle with in some way or another. I mean, when you're on the palmetto and that guy cuts you off, do you swear at him? Do you yell at the door? Do you let them in and say, God bless you? The Bible says this, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I, uh, I'm part of a growth group for married couples. Is anyone else in that group here? A couple of you? Okay, yeah, like nobody showed up in the first service. I'm going <laughs> to... Um, in that group, this verse is the verse for the whole 10 weeks. Just this one verse. Because we, they want us to understand this verse and to memorize it and apply it in our life because this is a foundational verse for any relationship that we have. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. I guess the question is, are we making any progress in these areas? Now, don't think I'm suggesting that we need to be perfect. We read the Philippians verse early on that Paul said, I'm not even perfect. So I don't expect us to be perfect, but are we changing? Are these areas where we blow up? Are these areas where we get stressed out? Are these areas where we have harbor resented feelings and we won't forgive people? Are they getting less and less and with less intensity or not? You see, people should see tenderness where our temper once abounded. We should see forgiveness where vengeance once ruled our hearts. These are big indicators if God is doing something in our lives. You know, it usually surprises most people when they find out that I used to have a very bad temper. It does. They're like, you, Pastor John, how could it be? You know, it's like, I'm human. Listen, I took a picture from when I was a child. I'm going to put up on the screen for a minute. I didn't take this. Someone else took it. I'm the little angry kid right here. That's me. Lee, um, Lee, Michael, Armando, Carrada, Gene, Julie. Okay. This guy right here. Look at that face. Now, it could be I was mad at that haircut. Or the outfit they dressed me in. I'm not sure. 
But you know what? This is not like an uncommon picture for me to be in there with an angry face on when I was young. I remember my grandmother right there. They, they raised me, my grandfather and my grandmother, because my, my parents basically abandoned me when I was six years old. This is probably within that first year. And the truth is, I harbored a lot of resentment and anger that I never knew and that I didn't deal with for a lot of my life. I remember she took me to the doctor one time. And I don't remember what I had or anything like that, but he, the doctor examined me and you know, he's doing all this stuff. Then he looks at me and he goes, he's got the red pepper in him. And I'm like, as a kid, I'm like, what does that mean? You know, so when we left, I said to my grandmother, I'm like, Mom, what, what was he talking about? What do you mean by the red pepper? He says, he says, you've got a temper. I mean, even the doctor could see it. And I'm just like being examined. I mean, it was like, I didn't even say a word. And he goes, you have a bad temper. Listen, this didn't go away just because I became a Christian. I remember years struggling with this as a Christian. I worked in a factory and I would go into work and and I would get angry at somebody. And I was like, and I'd be praying, Lord, oh, please help me. I can remember endlessly praying and praying for God to help me in those situations, to take away whatever feelings I had. I mean, I don't know how many people I had to apologize. I just knew it was the right thing to do. But through all of that, God began to make, I grew, I grew, you know, I've learned a lot about what happens uh, because of that. I learned that we are able to hide it. We're able to hide it really well. I was able to hide it good. And we convince ourselves when we hide it that we're actually doing okay. And what we kind of do is if like there's a volatile situation, we'll just kind of avoid that kind of conversation, right? We just avoid it because we know we're going to get, we're going to blow up. So we change the situation. We don't change inside. Or we, we build up walls and we put up these walls and we say, okay, you can't come in because if you come in, if I let you in my walls, you're going to hurt me and then I'm going to be upset and I'm not going to forgive you and then I'm going to have to deal with this forgiveness issue. So instead we keep people at arm's length. And so we do these little tricks to change our situation, but we never change from the inside. And then we call ourselves normal, but we're really not. I remember when I got married and Bob Barnes, I met, we met Bob Barnes, we came to speak one time at Barbara Golan. And he kind of liked my wife and I. And then he was like, oh, we should do coffee one day. So we went to go eat, drink coffee at his office. And we thought it was just going to be casual. But, you know, it became like a counseling session. My wife since then is like, I'm not going to meet with him. It's like counseling every time we go talk with him. And, he, and, and she reminded me of something I didn't remember. She goes, like right away, he goes, he said to me, he goes, you've got walls. Like right off the bat. I mean, I felt like the doctor was diagnosing me again. It was like he knew right away, you've got walls. And I kind of knew at that point in my life that I did. Listen, sometimes um, the best way we can tell if we have issues when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to anger, when it comes to the way we treat people, all these things, the best way to know is if you ask someone who's close to you. I mean, this takes someone to be very brave and you've got to prepare yourself and you've got to, you, you, you ask a person who is close to you and you be prepared to hear whatever it is that they have to say. Well, last week's homework in our growth group was on forgiveness. And so you had to confess three things that you, to your, your spouse that you wanted forgiveness for. And the thing that I confessed to my wife was, I'm sorry that I've yelled at you and blown up at you. You know, that wasn't easy to do. And she was like, oh, no, it's not a big deal. But you know what? I'm trying to be better than I was, and and I'm making progress from the person I was so many years ago. Listen, if asking that question right now, 
when I said that, asking someone scares you, then it could be that your growth in that area is stalled right now. Because we don't really want to face and actually have to change ourselves. We'd rather change the circumstance and hide it. Listen, if that's you, I want to tell you a story right now. And Jesus gets invited to a Pharisee's house. His name was Simon, the Pharisee. And he, and he invites him over, you know, because Jesus is very popular. And, and so he invites him into dinner. Jesus is there eating dinner. And while he's eating dinner, or while he's hanging out there, this woman comes into the house, walks right into the house, and she's crying. I mean, she's weeping and weeping and weeping and so many tears. And she comes up to him, and her, feet, her eyes, or the tears just cover his feet. She washes his feet with the tears. And then she takes her hair and she dries the feet. And then she takes this fragrant oil and anoints the feet of Jesus. And Simon is looking on and Simon's like, man, if he knew who this was, that she's a harlot, he would not be letting her do that. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, says, hey, Simon, let me ask you a question. You know, I know this debtor, this, this, this uh, creditor, and he had two guys that owe him money. One owed him 50 bucks and one owed him 5,000 bucks. He says, now, neither of those guys could pay their creditor. So the creditor forgave them both the amount that they owed. And so he says, listen, Simon, who do you think loved the creditor more? And Simon says, well, I suppose the guy who owed the $5,000, he would have been the one who loved him more. And Jesus says, you guess correctly. And then listen to this. I want you to hear this part. It's in, it's in your outline. It says, then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But get this, but a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. The person who hasn't fully experienced forgiveness and the love that God gives will have trouble and struggle loving and forgiving others. The person who has dramatically experienced the love and forgiveness of Jesus will be fundamentally changed forever. So the question might be, have we ever really grasped, fully comprehended what Jesus did on the cross for you and me? Maybe the reason we struggle with something like anger or unforgiveness is because we haven't ex- really, really grasped it and, forgive- and, and, and felt the forgiveness that God has for us. I mean, yeah, I've heard that Jesus died on the cross for me. And yeah, I said the prayer, but I'm still struggling to do it all on my own. And we haven't really fully embraced the love that God has poured down on us. Or maybe we've heard it before, but we've never even like bothered to ask for the forgiveness, to accept the forgiveness that Jesus has given us. Maybe today you're struggling with something in your life and you say, listen, I can't get that out and I don't know how. Maybe... You've identified with something that I said even about my life, but you're not sure how to forgive. You're not sure how to get those emotions and that anger out of your 
your life. Well, I'll tell you this. When I was growing up, because of the way I experienced life, I wanted to be so independent that I swore I would never, ever go for counseling or to a psychologist. Because I had it all together. There's nothing that they can tell me. You see, I can do it all myself. But I didn't realize that the very thing and the only thing, the only thing that can help you in that area is the forgiveness and the love of Jesus Christ in your life. Maybe you're struggling right now. I want to help you out. You don't have to do this right now because I don't know how you feel about it. But if you need more help, we offer counseling. And I will contact you this week. You write counseling in where it says prayer requests, and I will be sure to, to contact you. And if you're a woman, we have women, women counselors, and they will counsel you. And I offer you that because maybe some of us need a little help in making that next step. Let's move on. Let's read from verse 10. We're going to pick it up right in the middle where we left off. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. The third fill-in, the third sign of growth, of spiritual growth in your life is this. The presence of fruit in my life. The presence of fruit in my life. Paul is talking about having an impact with your life. He wants you to abound more and more, to increase more and more. The Bible says that you can tell a tree by its fruit. That's what Jesus said. You will know them by their fruits. In Matthew, it tells us, do men gather from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. What type of fruit are we referring to here? Not material gain, not your, your career and all these other things. Yeah, these are the fruits of my life. No, we're talking about spiritual fruit. So what does spiritual fruit look like? Well, it could be a many things, but maybe it's that people actually now begin to ask you questions about God and advice. You ever have that in your life? You come to know Jesus, he starts transforming you. People look on, they see you, and then they start, this person has something I need to, you know, I, I probably should ask them. And they just start asking you questions. God's bearing fruit in your life. Maybe it's you having an influence on your family or your friends. When Christians have, or people have become Christians, sometimes their whole family begins to come over to know Jesus too because maybe they've been inspired or encouraged or who knows what or the effect that you're having and you start to see that in your life. Or maybe you ask somebody and invite them to church and they accept, right? Like God's starting to bear fruit in your life. I was very proud of my, my sister and brother-in-law that on Easter they invited somebody and they came. I was like, this is amazing. I can see God is doing something in their life. I know just by observing that, that there's stuff going on behind the scenes in their life that's growing. Because that's why someone would actually accept and say, yeah, I'll come to church on Sunday. Right? This type of fruit can only come from God. It can't be something that we try. Yes, I'm going to make it happen. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that we force our way or make fruit happen in our lives. It won't happen. Only God can do it. Only through God. Listen to what it says in uh, John. Jesus said this the day before he went to the cross. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. 
True spiritual growth can only come from remaining close to God. The more time with you spend with Jesus, the more time you spend with him, the more he will be transforming you and changing you. I can always tell in my life when I've been neglecting my relationship with Jesus. I can. Because a lot of things happen. I begin, fears just begin to creep into my life. I think it's kind of the old me, you know? Uncertainty, be, uncertainty be about what I'm doing or where I'm going in life. My attitude toward other people and things begins to change. Everything just seems to be out of whack. You know, you ever been there, right? You know when you're getting farther and farther away because your life just begins to change. God made you and I so that we will be as close to him as possible. You know, the funny thing is, when things get busy in our lives, we often throw out the most powerful thing. I know what it is. I'm not like telling you. It's my experience, right? My day gets busy and I'm like, okay, all right, no time for the Bible today. Let's just go do this, right? And I go do that. And here's the thing. That's the most powerful thing in my life. That's the most important thing in my life. I should be taking this and making sure this is the number one priority, no matter how much time there is. Because when I do that, God somehow makes everything okay. It may not be what I have wanted, but God has a way of putting things right when we put him first. If we want transformation in our lives, if we want to really change, if we want to really see fruit, the evidence of that, then we need to stay as close to God as we can every day in every way. If we would only realize that, that there is nothing more important than staying close to God, then we would be transforming in ways that would be amazing. Listen to this, what Jesus says. Remember the beginning quote, a true disciple of Jesus never stops growing. Listen to this verse. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great joy to my Father. Let's get back to the question that I posed at the beginning of the message. Okay, what do you want to be when Christ returns? What do you want to be? Are you getting ready? Are you making any changes now that will make you different then than you are right now? We were at the couples retreat, my wife and I, and uh, we decided to stay an extra few days because we were on our baby moon. Anyone know what that is? Baby moon. It's like a honeymoon. Somebody the hands in the back. Okay. That's where, you know, we had like a honeymoon before the baby comes. So, you know, it's romantic and we went to the beach and we went to dinner and we had a great time. And we were driving one night down the road, down the street. And uh, Carolina's looking at like the store shop fronts and it was dark. So I had a picture, but it's not that clear. So and she's driving by and she's reading one. And, and one of them says this, the bucket list martial arts, the bucket list martial arts. We, we didn't, I, I didn't get the picture, but I did go on their website. It says, listen to this. It's the first of its kind karate studio with classes exclusively for the active baby boom generation. The over 40 crowd now in Naples, Florida. No kids and no, no cage fighters, okay? So I'm glad for that. Don't get me wrong. I love kids. Um, there are plenty of karate schools for children, just as many gyms for the cage fighters, but there is just nothing dedicated to our generation, the forgotten generation, when it comes to martial arts training until now. So now, if you're older and you're retired, there's something for you. You just have to go to Naples. It's not too late to learn martial arts. Does anyone here have a bucket list? Anyone? A few of you. I don't have a bucket list. I, I didn't even see the movie. I don't know. <laughs> All I know, do you know what bucket list is? A bucket list is 
all the things you want to accomplish in life before you kick the bucket. Yeah, before you die, right? So it's the bucket list, right? But I don't have a bucket list. And not many of you indicated you had a bucket list. Why? Why? Because the bucket seems so far away, right? The bucket and me are like very far away right now. So there isn't really much on the list because I have a feeling, but by the time I get to that bucket, a lot of that list is going to be taken care of, right? So I'm not really caring about whether I'm getting my bucket list done. You know, maybe we think that way when it comes to Jesus returning, right? Yeah, eventually I know the bucket's coming, but it's so far away. Yeah, I know Jesus is coming, but maybe he's so far away still that I don't really have to be thinking about that. Listen, um, to what Peter writes about the end of the age. He says, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The Bible tells us that unbelievers will say that, but I kind of have a feeling that a lot of us think that way too, right? I mean, because I do. When I'm driving down that road in the car, I'm like, Lord, is this the day? When are you coming back? Right? I look out at the world and it's like the, one of the farthest thoughts in my mind that Jesus is actually going to part the clouds and come down. You see, we think that it's so far away. And we think maybe because it's far away, I'll prepare for it when I get closer. I'll prepare for it when it comes. And we make decisions about change and preparation as the time draws near. And the faith is kind of like time sensitive, right? It only really matters when we need it at the end. And so it's like maybe we're not putting the emphasis on our growth. I don't know, maybe you've been going to church for years in your life and you've never really seen a significant change. I mean, you come to service regularly, but there's nothing inward happening. And perhaps Monday through Saturday, you're like a totally different person. But on Sunday, you kind of just come and it's a day that you show up. It's... It's just a place you go on Sunday morning. I mean, is that really what we wanted Christianity to be for us? Just a place that we showed up on Sunday? Or do we really want it to be something that trans- transformed our lives? Something that we knew we were doing what God had wanted us to do. We were seeing God do amazing things through us and in us and among us. And we're rejoicing in that. Maybe that's you. Maybe right now you're saying, I really do would like to take something. Do something and and just start in that direction. Take out your connection card again. Listen, there's two other things on here that if you haven't done them, I want to encourage you to do them. One is attend the membership class. It's next Sunday. It's next Sunday right during this service. So you come to the first service and then don't miss the second service. I mean, we're not... It happens at, during the second service in a classroom right over here. And the reason I say do membership is because membership is about accountability. It's about just simply being a disciple of Jesus. So when you show up, you're going to learn about what it means to be a disciple. What it means to follow after Jesus. That's it. Simply. And live out our lives. You going to that class won't make you a member, but it will give you the opportunity. And if you're saying, man, I need something to jumpstart me, then take that class. The other thing is then bold, it's in red right there, is be baptized. Be baptized. You know, I, this is a curious, I'm, I'm going to risk insulting people. I'm sorry. I probably, I hope you don't 
you're not offended. But I, I wonder at times why we get saved one day and then it's like a, a year later that we actually get baptized. It's kind of like saying, Lord, I accept you as Lord and Savior. That's what Lord means, that you follow everything that he does. I accept all that, but I'll start following you when I get dipped. I'll start really living the life out when I get dipped. And, and you know, in the Bible, people got baptized immediately. The Ethiopian man's like, what? Salvation? What's keeping me from being baptized? And he wanted to jump right in right away, and Philip baptized him. And like for you and me, baptism is simply us saying, man, I'm, gonna, I'm following after you. And we have this notion that that's when we say, I'm going to get serious. I think I I can live with Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. But when I get baptized, then I'll get serious. And I understand that because it is a moment when we publicly say to everybody, I'm following him. I'm going to try to do whatever it is that he asks me to do. I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm going to try and I'm going to start to see growth and change. And what I want to encourage you today is maybe you haven't been baptized and you've been coming for a while. Maybe you've accepted Jesus. And my question to you is is not to, to make you feel bad, but maybe you can think inside your head and just simply say, why, why haven't I been baptized yet? Why, what's keeping me? Why haven't I made the step to follow Jesus completely in the things that he's asked me to do? Listen, if it's you, you can, you can check that off. And uh, in two weeks, we're going to have a baptism here. And you can take that next step and say, listen, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go and wherever it leads. Listen, we only have a limited time, each of us, on this planet. Listen to this verse. Seventy years are given to us. Some even live to 80. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we fly away. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. If you found out that you only had a year to live, how would you live it differently? Would you be thinking about those people that maybe you have broken relationships with and that you need to give forgiveness. They need, you need to ask forgiveness. All the relationships, how you might live it differently because you, you want that memory of who you are to be a loving one, a kind one. What changes would you make? What changes would you make if you know you only had a month, a week? What if you knew that Jesus was coming back tonight? I bet each one of us would not stop praying or reading our Bible. Nothing else would seem to matter. I understand that we have our lives to live. But can we put the priority on God like we would if we knew there was a date, an expiration date in our lives? If we would do that, maybe we would see amazing growth in the area of our lives when it comes to spirituality. Let's pray. Lord, I want to just thank you for everybody who's here. Lord, they're here because they want to grow and they want to know you more. And Lord, let us rejoice in that. And I pray, Lord, right now, I don't know if if this challenged people today or confirmed just where they were at in life and that, yeah, I just needed a little boost to keep going. But Lord, whatever it is, I pray that you give us the courage to continue to follow you. Lord, I pray that we would realize deep within our hearts that this word of yours is everything that we need and it is the most important thing that we could be putting the emphasis on in our life. Lord, that our relationship with you would be the number one thing that we do. Lord, I pray that you would bless us. Lord, that you see fruit in our lives and bear fruit in our lives, Lord, among our family, our friends, our co-workers, and Lord, even those that we don't even know. 
Lord, I pray that the legacy of everyone here would be one that we will rejoice in when we get to heaven. Lord, I thank you for your goodness, and I pray a blessing over everyone here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.